Hello, listener, and welcome back to the second episode of JCMS's mini series, mini podcast series, um, JCMS in Conversation. Um, I'll just do a, a, a very short this time introduction to the series again, and then I'll introduce our guest, um, and then we'll crack on. So, I said last week, uh, well, whenever it was last time, that that the aim of this this series is really to develop a kind of informal musical tapestry of of tastes and preferences at Jesus College, if only just to, to just to provide something alternative um, for college members to dig their teeth into in the absence of proper in-person concerts. Um, I'm coming to realize as we do this that music is a very obvious um, but also a very, very good gateway into people's wider personalities, tastes, preferences. So I think there's a lot to get out of this uh, relatively informal conversation series, basically. Last week, we, we I talked a little bit about why we chose to focus on albums. And I think this week, um, to develop on that, um, Aurelio's choices have been... Uh, the actual recording itself is important as well. So that's another extra interesting dimension which I'm really looking forward to exploring. So we're extremely lucky to have Aurelio Petrucci <laughs> with us today. Um, Aurelio is the, the current president of the Jesus College Student Union. Uh, he's famous on JFES. He's a general college BNOC, a third-year philosophy student, a lover of music and an all-round good egg. So thank you so much already for coming on. Thank you very much. I'm very much a good egg at the moment because my hair, um, I've got a buzz cut, so I actually do look like an egg as well <laughs> now. <laughs> Listener can confirm this is true. Um, and, 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 and a good thing, a good thing as well. Moving very swiftly on, um, I would like to start with Aurelio's first choice, which is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Opus 125, um, he's chosen the recording from the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, um, the recording of 1990 under the baton of Leonard Bernstein. Um, and we'll, we will talk about this album because presumably the choice itself is very important and Aurelio can explain that it, that it, it, that it, 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 was, a, it was a concert essentially in celebration of the, of the fall of the Berlin Wall in, um, given in Christmas in 1989. Um, as to the piece, I'll quickly introduce the piece, and then and then and then over to you. That it, it is one of the most famous and significant pieces of Western classical music. Um, it's the first serious example of a composer using uses using voices within the symphonic context, um, and of course, the words themselves are deeply powerful and significant culturally, socially, historically. They are the words of a poem by Friedrich Schiller, a 1785 poem. The piece itself was written in. 1820-something, 1822, maybe. Um, yeah, Aurelio, so I just want to jump in and say, I d just explain to me why this very famous, much-loved piece was a particular favourite of yours, and if you could if you could mention why the, this album in particular as well. Yeah, so um, I think many people come to Beethoven's Ninth through um, Stanley Kubrick film A Clockwork Orange, um, and uh, you know we can argue about what the film is actually about. I, I think it's kind of about classical music and music. Um, and you know we're introduced to this symph symphony by what the protagonist called uh, Ludwig van. And um, yeah, I mean that's where I kind of first seriously heard it. Um, and then quite quite soon after, um, went to a concert at the Royal Festival Hall um, and sat next to a very charming. 
um, gentleman in his 90s who spent the whole interval explaining to me how wonderful it was that um, Britain is the only country in the world where every church has a choir um, and we all uh, 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 kind of get involved in this national culture of singing and 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 it was appropriate because it's the choral symphony um but yeah i mean it isn't my kind of go-to uh recording of beethoven's ninth um in the sense that uh i really like john elliott gardner's um whole series of beethoven symphonies um but i think it is the most interesting recording of beethoven's ninth um precisely for the reason that uh, you mentioned, which is that it was uh, performed as a Christmas concert in 1989 um, by Leonard Bernstein, who I think died the following year. Um, and he replaces just one word in the symphony, uh, in the text from Schiller, and he replaces uh, Freude, uh, joy, with Freiheit, freedom. And it changes the character of the piece. And I mean, some people say that Schiller and Beethoven toyed with uh, actually in the original text replacing Freude with Freiheit. So there is kind of a, pe a pedigree to that decision. Uh, but obviously when the wa wall came down, I think Bernstein's recording of this symphony kind of reflects the wider kind of hope uh, that existed in the world and perhaps has now dissolved um, for freedom um, past the you know in, into the 21st century that's that's a that's an absolutely fascinating place to start i think from clockwork orange um very uh, extremely interesting and, and that's also an excellent introduction to this piece a few things to say about that i mean absolutely yes in the sense that there's quite a clear symbolism as to as to what that what that concept meant um, from a from a social perspective and with regards to sort of looking towards the future, but Clockwork Orange deals with the piece itself in a very complex way, doesn't it? I think because I think one scene that comes to mind instantly is is where you know um, I'm going to screw up all the details, but he they go to this bar in the night, and you know he's the ultimate kind of delinquent, isn't he? Kind of misanthrope. Um, and there's this moment where he's looking across and he sees a woman singing the very famous Ode to Joy theme to a couple of men. And he's there's this moment of sudden clarity and complete beauty. Um, and then the next scene, it's kind of... It, it, the, 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 the music is, is transmuted into a kind of carnival variation on the theme. And it reminded me of the fact that... I don't know whether you've ever, you've ever um, listened to Slavoj Žižek's really crazy pervert's guide to ideology. Great film. He talks a lot about music. And he says that what strikes him about Beethoven 9 is not the kind of the unity of the message, um, kind of its, its kind of utopian promise. It's its universal adaptability, which is, is fascinating because quite right, he points out that, not, yes, it's, it's the unofficial anthem of the European Union um, as of the 1980s. Um, and yes, it had that at the end, at the end of, the, at the, end of the, at the fall of the Berlin Wall, it had a very clear message behind it. But also, it was one of the only pieces of Western classical music that Chairman Mao allowed to be played at his rallies. It was the official anthem of the new state of southern Rhodesia. Um, it was used by revolutionary guerrillas in Peru. It, 
and it's and it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because every time we talk of this, uh, some kind of message of universal universal fraternity coming together as humanity, it feels a little bit like it's like it's it's a bit of an empty vessel in, into which you can pour whichever particular ideology you happen to be touting. Um, I wonder what you thought about that, and and that and, and that and um, and that's really interesting in the face of like um, it, you you you. Let's say that when I was looking for for information on this piece and, and modern reviews and things, I found a lot of a lot of quite lazy commentary saying, and this piece is of course particularly relevant in this time, um, which of course obscures the massive complexity of all of the of, of like an ideological message, doesn't it? I wonder what you thought about that. I mean, well, yeah, I, I mean, the ninth was even used in Nazi propaganda, and um, so I think y you're right to kind of point out the kind of. Uh, varied nature, uh, to say the least, of uh, th the uses of the music. Um, I mean, it's one of these things in politics, right, that you, there are some words which kind of lose their meaning, uh, social mobility or uh, equality, and we're not quite sure really ever what people mean by those words. Um, and it would be good if we did, because then we could move closer towards those ideals. And I think perhaps the ninth it's a shame but perhaps the ninth has kind of taken on that role as well as a piece of music which kind of is everything to everyone um and in in being so uh loses some of its meaning um you know i think i mean i think we can kind of salvage a message we can certainly understand what beethoven thought of it or what schiller thought of the words um and I think the kind of the kind of birth of those ideas uh from the French Revolution and this I kind of idea of um liberty equality fraternity um which we hear echoed in um Schiller's words yeah, I think I think there is a universal message there which goes beyond just uh any particular time and is relevant to all times and i think that's actually the beauty of the music you know i think people will still be listening to this in hundreds of years time and appreciating the message and it won't become a kind of outdated or kind of parochial thing which is limited to the sort of 19th century mm, yeah and i think that we're gonna talk a lot about aren't we, about pieces that have been very linked to their immediate context and yet somehow managed to escape that which i think is is probably our our route into the ring cycle isn't it our next recording um which of course you know in the conversation around wagner is it is deeply rich and deeply problematic in many ways but also that you know it, there's still definitely the potential to extract a universal message on a more mundane note about the beethoven because you you've you've given us some really good um thoughts there is that listening to it this morning i felt i um I felt slightly moved, partly because I like the piece very much, but also because um, I could hear the coughing of the live concert and all the random sounds that you forget about. And it makes me miss it. It made me miss it a lot, going to a concert and being in the midst of, you know, the last few minutes of the Resurrection Symphony and hearing someone coughing their lungs out and getting the kind of beautiful messiness of all of that. Um, but anyway, that, that's just that's just what, what came to mind this morning. No, I mean, of course, I mean, the um, the kind of the concert itself, I mean, Bernstein was kind of 
not on death's door, but I mean, he died the following year. He w- wasn't well when he was conducting this. Um, and, you know, there are there are some accounts from eyewitnesses. I mean, I don't know how, how good, <laughs> the, you know, those accounts are if they were actually there. Um, but th- the picture which kind of struck me from those is that uh, he kind of conducted th- through the symphony, I mean, best part of an hour before you get to the actual choral uh, section of it. And he was tired and kind of flagging. And as soon as the choir sang the word Freiheit instead of Freude, just this kind of rush of of uh, of power came through. And he finished off the whole symphony with kind of this kind of last gasp of 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 triumph, I guess. Um, and I don't know. I think that's kind of a the kind of human spirit being ch- i mean this is this is <laughs> tenuous but it's the kind of human spirit being channeled through him and i think there is a sort of there is a sort of uh relationship between the conductor and the audience which we lose when we presidential business <laughs> <laughs> there, i mean there is this kind of relationship between the conductor and the audience which we lose when we are uh doing concerts online mm-hmm. uh, or listening to even an album li- like this and that is that the audience has a kind of power to will the conductor on. And I think particularly in this recording, you can imagine the kind of audience anticipating the word Freiheit. And you can almost imagine the kind of gasp of, of uh, joy um, at, the, at the, the, what the music represented. And you can imagine Bernstein reacting accordingly. Mm, yeah, I mean, the image that came to mind is is Beethoven himself, um, who who was 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 physically weak and largely deaf at the first performance in Vienna of this piece, um, and the legend goes that he was he so there was a proper conductor who was telling the orchestra what to do, and next the conductor was Beethoven who was kind of wildly sort of gesticulating, uh, gyrating and. And just being totally overwhelmed by the music, which he could he couldn't really even hear. And the legend goes is that he was so into it by the end of the f- um, the end of the final movement that the mezzo at the end had to just turn him round because the audience had already started applauding and he was still going. Um, and I saw and I, and I and I I had both the image of Bernstein and the image of Beethoven in my head at the same time. It was quite interesting. So that's brilliant what a g- that's a great start let's move straight on to the ring cycle two absolute titans um again it w- one of the most important famous pieces of western classical music i think um my my thoughts went immediately to a thinker that i like scruton and they went straight to a quote of his that, that I love very much, that the ring is about the origin of consciousness and the birth of the human world, um, in particular, the and as against the natural order from which humanity has long since departed. Well, I just want to hear your thoughts on this piece, um, which, as I said earlier, is, 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 is soaked with controversy, I think. Um, for me, it, you know... I can't decide whether it's romantic nonsense and pompous bollocks or true beauty. What do you think? I think as with much romantic music and romantic opera, it is quite hard to decide, but uh, I err on the side of true beauty. Um, You know, I'm no Scruton fan, but 
um i think he's right on that i mean he uh, the, the kind of first bars of das rheingold is this kind of primordial beauty of of it, it, i mean it sounds as if uh you were there when the world was was starting um and you know you can approach the ring from so many different standpoints i mean people have done psychoanalyses of the ring they've done um there's various things about philosophy in the ring and there's um i mean there's even whole papers been written about the contracts of the ring and the legal philosophy of the ring um, which is very very interesting um and it is this such a complex piece and i think it is possibly one of the best um examples of what wagner calls a gesamtkunstwerk in that i mean he he did he did the music he did the libretto he did the staging i mean he he was so kind of involved in every aspect of it uh, and yet for something which came from just one man there is such a depth and y- you know I, I'm not sure that there is much in the kind of western canon maybe other than Shakespeare and this is high praise for Wagner which you can kind of drill into as much as you can the ring um, but I mean of course th- I, I do have more cynical views about it as well I mean I think <laughs> the light motifs um I've heard people describe them as theme songs um <laughs> and they are a beautiful beautiful device but i s- I certainly think um and and a, a device that Wagner pioneered but I think um that there is a more tongue in cheek way of approaching the ring as well which is is necessary just as necessary as kind of enjoying it yeah I mean uh, one of the reasons I like going to the opera and this is something that was discussed on the first episode, was that it's v- it is, v- to put it bluntly, it's vaguely ridiculous. The stories are, you know, you, d- you don't look at it and think, oh, I see myself in that, because, it, you know, these, these are old Norse myths about, you know, the final, you know, the gods in their final battles and, you know, quest for immortality and... and and the music is implausible, and the staging is implausible. It's all grand, it's all messy, it's sweaty, it's physical, and yet out of it there is something that almost everyone can can take something of value from. And I think that the Ring is a really good example of that. I mean, I remember I, 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 the first opera I was ever taken to see was Lohengrin in Cardiff. Um, That's a t- tough one to start. Well, with. that's what that's what everyone says, and and and. Um, and it was, it, and I had a slightly, uh, sort of, um, slightly pompous person that that took me, and he was saying, you know, just, you know, don't, don't worry if, don't worry if it's kind of a bit over your head or you don't get it. <laughs> and I sat down and I was like, this is fucking Star Wars. I love this. There, are, like you say, <laughs> there are theme tunes. It's a, it's a film score that I'm listening to. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I get it. But I'm, I'm, I'm engaged. I love it. It's well, I, I think that's no accident. I mean, the, the people have been. St- you know, film music composers have been so uh, influenced by what Wagner did. I mean, I'm not sure it's an accident that you it does sound a, li- a little bit like Star Wars. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. But it, 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 it's a really fine piece. And and tell me, is this a particular recording that's that's special to you? Or uh, so again, it's not my go-to recording. Um, I really like the um, Janowski Ring. Um, which was, I think, released last year, um, and it's that recording is kind of on period instruments, or at least sounds like it's on period instruments, um, and it's excellent. But the um, the the Chirot ring, 
um, is important because it was the Jahrhundert ring or the sort of centenary ring that celebrated 100 years after the kind of initial performance of the whole ring cycle. And it's important because it kind of broke tradition in quite a radical way. So until then, um, the Bayreuth Festival, which was the festival in uh, Bavaria in Germany, which Wagner set up, um, traditionally used the same stagings as, as Wagner had done uh, 100 years ago. And they kind of did a very, very similar staging, very, very similar style, um, told the story in a very similar way uh in every production and then the Shiro ring kind of reorientated where how Wagner productions were done um so it kind of situated the ring cycle in the industrial revolution rather than sort of this primordial uh kind of Norse uh fancy world that's fascinating and and of course uh, it was written um the year before revolution in Dresden, wasn't it? In eight, in 1848. And and Wagner himself was initially a, a, a fervent young socialist. And there, I think there are definitely moments, um, I'm going to forget the, the the name of the king with the little slave armies. <laughs> I apologise, listener, for details um, and clarity here. But there are some, Alberic, um, there yeah. are some extremely effective evocations of kind of the horror of, of, of early industrial capitalism. I yeah, think. And of yeah. course, and I think you get a real sense of uh, these people who seem so, I mean, people, these gods who seem so kind of lofty uh, in Rheingold, uh, but are kind of engaged in these sort of petty disputes over the gold and, and the ring and etc. And you see the kind of the kind of you see through the facade of power um and you can kind of see that the ruling class or the gods are actually quite uh they don't really know what they're doing and i think that is a message that wagner is trying to send um so it's kind of about the fallibility of of the powerful mm, yeah power and i think without law is, is nothing yeah. <laughs> and i think yeah. you know the the Chirot ring brings out this kind of narrative which was uh established and analyzed by george bernard shaw and i think it 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 does really really well i mean it, it provoked a near riot in 1976 when it was first staged and i think as with a lot of things in life people initially reacted very badly to the change and then by 1980 when the final performance was given the standing ovation lasted for over an hour. And I just think, I mean, that would have been an incredible moment in musical history to have been mm. in, to have mm. stood in that standing ovation. Um, and, you know, when I first saw The Ring in 2016, um, I was 16 years old, impressionable, romantic, and I saw it at the Sage in Gateshead in June. And um, Megan's laughing because she <laughs> she's also from Newcastle. Um, but... It was just a beautiful production. It wasn't staged. It was a kind of um, concert performance um, with kind of minimal staging. And I think there's always a kind of interesting moment in at the end of a concert when you wonder whether or not you should give a standing ovation. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if it if always when you give a standing ovation it does just come from the heart. But 
at the end of Gutadamarun, I literally couldn't stop myself from st- immediately standing up to clap. <laughs> and the whole of the of the concert hall did so at once. And I think that's partly because of the power of the music and, and of course it was very well conducted, but it's also because it's also a kind of appreciation of the collective effort of the audience and the orchestra because and the singers, because it's a sort of fifteen hour long uh undertaking and it and it, it is a marathon for everyone involved. And I think kind of just the kind of banal raw appreciation of just the physical task that it takes to stage mm. a ring you know it, it, it you do appreciate it by the end and actually um you know i i cycled <laughs> i digress i cycled to the ring um to, to the to, to the concert hall to to see the ring and i came out most nights at about half 10 and the sun was just setting and i would stand on the time bridge which is one of these bridges that goes over Newca- over the Tyne in Newcastle. Um, and I kind of just stood for a while and kind of just took it in. And I just remember just thinking it was one of the most beautiful pieces of music I'd ever heard. And it kind of, and I, and I had never really engaged that much with Wagner before that, but it kind of made me fall in love with it. And I think most kind of Wagner fans do have some moment like that where they just kind of fell in love with the music. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, I haven't kind of looked back since. I've loved it since. Well, I don't think there's much we can add to that. That's a that's a great encapsulation of all of 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 all your different thoughts on the piece. Um, every yes, everyone does have that moment, and your moment was was um, much more aesthetic than mine. Mine was like, I'm so overwhelmed, I must eat KFC, <laughs> or I just needed to be brought immediately back down to earth. I just thought this is this is so overwhelming. I don't know what to think. I don't know who I am anymore. You know, I just need to go and eat, get my hands in a greasy bucket of chicken. <laughs> so that was my approach. Less glamorous, less, you know, it's less like the end of a film, but... But, you know, I would recommend that, listener, as well, as a, an approach, if it's all too much for you. I know a friend that listened to the Baron Boy um, Proms um, concert version of The Ring which was a few years ago. Um, the whole thing uh, with a very large ice bucket in his belly, just to stay grounded, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, I mean, there are many ways we could go on to link uh, to link these next two pieces, but you, s- you said that, you know... the. Uh, as with the Beethoven, the Ring was a was a piece that that people struggled to understand immediately, um, because of its because of its its ambition, because of its scope, because of its kind of raw energy. People didn't immediately think, "Yeah, this is good. Yeah, we like this." People were confused, slightly bewildered, slightly frustrated. The more more conservative minded people were angry. They didn't like it, and um, kind of enter enter Mozart. Really, I think the next two the the, two, the next two pieces you've chosen are are, are, are the Requiem. Which we'll talk about now, and then *Marriage of Figaro*. Um, starting with the *Requiem*, one thing that immediately struck me when re-listening to all of these pieces with the recordings you suggest were the very beginning of *The Ring* really reminds me of the beginning of Mozart *Requiem*. Um, kind of, I've really felt at the beginning of the la- uh, the intro that I was at, that I was at the depths of the Rhine again. It was a very strange feeling. Um, tell us firstly about why you love the Requiem, which is one of my favourite pieces of classical music, and and also why this recording. Yeah, I mean, I think the Requiem in some ways couldn't be more different from the Ring. I think it's such a kind of elegant 
powerful, self-contained piece of beauty. Whereas the ring, for me, feels like a kind of sprawling, vast landscape. <laughs> you know, it's it's almost like the difference between a kind of Turner painting, and represented by the the <laughs> requiem and the landscape which he painted. This kind of sprawling, deep uh, uh, vista that I think the the ring kind of represents for me. Um, and I think this particular recording is very interesting. Um, it is kind of harsh and at times kind of almost difficult um, and it's quick and it's very very different from a sort of um, another kind of great recording of the Requiem by Celibidace uh, which is a kind of cathedral-like sound I mean this is almost it's almost like a kind of chamber orchestra uh, recording and I mean, the the conductor, Carensis, is just this kind of awful, crazed egoist um, who's obsessed with his music being incredible and in many ways <laughs> then reflects Mozart himself. Um, and I think he is, he, he really views himself as a prodigy and he is such a perfectionist. I mean, he reminds me to bring it back to Kubrick of Kubrick. You know, you have this person who would do a hundred takes for one scene and his actors must have been sick of him. And likewise, I think Carensis's orchestra must be sick of him because he will also make people repeat phrases and 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 uh, arias or, or whatever. And I think as well, an interesting thing to say about Carensis is that some of the music is uh, digitally altered. In this, and they kind of will bring out a particular instrument more if they d if he doesn't feel that it's been brought out enough. Um, and usually, I'm kind of a purist about this sort of thing. Certainly, in in live music, I don't like it when things are augmented or kind of toned down. But I think in recorded music, I actually quite like it because you ha it does give you then more freedom to kind of ex bring out something you like more. I mean, I think the bit the big thing that stands out with me in this recording of the Requiem is is the horns are just excellent mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. really really good yeah it's a it's a really fine interesting recording i've i i've i've done countless requiems as part of the choral societies choirs um as a rep um in various capacities in in various different places and after i played for rehearsals twice i could pretty much just kind of turn it on and whatever the particular character at the front happened to be whichever the particular choir was there was a kind of I got there was a way of doing it we got we got I kind of I understood how 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 the English choral scene did Mozart's Requiem and then you listen to Carensis and it's familiar sounds but it's totally unfamiliar as well and there's something of his background in that I think he's you know he's, he, he's his career started in Siberia and this is a recording from is it Musica Turner and the New Siberian Singers yeah. um, which is which are his own groups, which are very explicitly kind of anti the music establishment. Um, uh, they almost have they almost have a kind of semi-industrial sound. It's almost like this has been recorded in a factory. You know, um, it's got that kind of really pulsating um, urgency about it. Um, and I wonder whether that's kind of fostered by his his simultaneous kind of involvement 
in the great Western classical pieces, and his kind of he seems to be kind of standing on the on the on the edge a bit. He's kind of this this figure who's in and out at the same time. I mean that that maybe that's just wrong now because he's super fashionable and everyone loves him. But but I do I do think it works in this context. And and Mozart, he yeah, you're absolutely right to link it back to Mozart as man. I mean, um, I have to stop myself now thinking about. Um, Amadeus, really, because that that does it for me. Really, Mozart as a man is that something that you love? Is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I of course um, love the film Amadeus, mm. and I think, yeah, I mean, so the music in Amadeus was done by Sir Neville Mariner, and is very very different to the style that Carenzis takes. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it, it is this kind of almost metallic kind of rock music take on on Mozart. I mean, it really is just so iconoclastic and so different to to kind of other recordings and i i i think it's really interesting i mean the the kind of closest i think other conductors get is uh john elliott gardner with his um orchestre revolutionnaire romantique and he does really well with kind of beethoven symphonies to bring out the kind of power behind beethoven in this kind of using period instruments and i mean i i just think the first time I listened to these Carensis recordings and particularly this one of the Requiem, it was the kind of most strong, it was the strongest time that I f- felt, wow, classical music really, you, c- you know, a recording can make or break what how good a classical music piece is. And it was the first time I really, really grew to appreciate just how important the recording is mm. to mm. your enjoyment of the piece. And I think there was probably an element of maybe discovering this when I was like 17 and and wanted kind of a a kind of bombastic um, version of these kind of slow, uh, stately requiems I'd been hearing. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what this was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I promised myself that I wasn't going to bring up the organ in this podcast series, but um, or Bach, but I am because I had exactly that same sensation with the Simon Preston recording of the complete works of Bach which just gave me which 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 just like just like smacked me over the back of the head and said shut up you don't know this music yet and i think carensis does have a habit of doing that to you um yeah and and you hear things in this recording of the requiem which you kind of can never really quite make out when you listen to 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 ordinary recordings of it and i think that's kind of beautiful as well because i think i think that is something that you get from live music often when you go to a concert you'll look at a kind of a cello that's playing something that you, which you haven't heard in in the recordings you've listened to or you'll hear something or see something which you think oh i haven't i haven't like noticed that in these pieces before and i think Carensis is very good at bringing out those kind of quirks mm-hmm. in pieces and those kind of interesting little little bits that you wouldn't usually hear in a kind of wider recording yeah and coming back to that kind of the, the lovable messiness of of live music it often you get those moments of of insight from the fact that you're you're sitting too close to the horns or you've got the shit seats so you're miles away from anything so it all kind of washes over you uh, yeah i think you d- there's a th- there's always a messiness there and yeah carensis is, is brilliant at that i must try and keep this short so carensis is also aurelio's choice for his recording of marriage figaro tell us this piece same sort of message yeah, I mean, it's it's th- it was the second opera I ever saw. Um, I saw it at the Theatre Royal in Newcastle, um, sung, in, sung in English, 
um terrible acoustics um just kind of a kind of interesting performance of the marriage of figaro um but it's a piece i've always liked even before kind of i was into classical music or opera because i think it is a piece that many people know um and it's also a very funny piece i mean it uh, there's a famous quote from someone that you can set the marriage of figure on the moon if you have doors and there's quite a lot of kind of farce comedy which goes on with people going in and out of doors and and there's a great line from amadeus where mozart says um how many people uh, i've got seven people singing all together at the same time how long do you think i can uh, can keep that up and he says it's, it's something like 25 minutes or half an hour or something, and it's an incredible amount. I think it's the, the end of Act 2. Um, and it, it is just this piece which is full of, um, full of kind of, full of life and full of joy, and, and I, I really, really love it. I mean, I think it, it situates very, very well from a f- philosophical point of view, if you're talking about the philosophy of love, between... Cosi Fan Tutte and Don Giovanni, the two other um, operas, which have which were whose librettos were written by Lorenzo da Ponte, um, and also scored by Mozart, and you have this really really interesting kind of three faces of love. And Corensis has also recorded those other two operas, and they're very good recordings. I would <laughs> encourage people to, to listen to them, especially the Don Giovanni one. Um, and so, sort of Figaro kind of represents the kind of I don't know, the kind of marital love. And then Don Giovanni is this kind of lustful animal love. And then Cosi Fantuto is this kind of love in between of kind of the kind of early stages of a relationship um, that might go sort of further. Um, and I do think it's a really interesting kind of three faces of love sort of thing. Um, but Figaro, I think, is my is the most charming of the three. Um, there are just so many beautiful moments in them and Corensis does, does does them really well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, charming's an interesting word. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're absolutely right. And and if you if you give Carenthus a piece of charming music, um, the really special moments moments that we all know and love very well are made even better by the rest of the fact it feels like he's kind of you know got a rod halfway up his ass. You know, like he's there is some real energy there as well and some rich contrast. Um, I think we better stop there. Already, it, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And I mean, it's just astonishing that you have th- such a depth of knowledge w- with with all your other st- things going on as well. And um, I suppose this is a this is an encouragement to anyone who does who does fancy listening to this that um, that uh, that that classical music um, to say it means it can be all things to all people is to kind of not do it justice it really it, it has a, it has a has a breadth and a richness that 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 it's worth exploring even if you think you hate classical music even if you think you hate music altogether um i guarantee you if you listen to all of these pieces all the way through there's going to be a moment which makes you sit up and think oh hang on maybe i should listen to that again so thank you so much for radio thank you very much i really appreciate it